You're listening to Panels of Blood, part of SplatterPictures.net. And welcome to Panels of Blood, the podcast where I read you horror comics from all eras. I'm your host, Wes Snipe. For those of you listening for the first time, hello! If you like, there are six previous episodes of the series where I covered one complete story of Vampirella. Right now, there's a Twitter poll going on to determine the next multiple episode story. But before that, I thought I'd take you back. Back to a simpler age, where horror comics reign supreme and sold by the tens of millions each month. In episode 4 or 5 of the show, I talked about the pre-code era of comics. Frederick Wertham, Senator Kefauver, the general fuckery that took place at the turn of the century in regards to comics that was a new medium at the time. Something that just didn't exist before the high-speed printing presses. What sort of uh, fuckery, you might ask? What about public comic book burnings that took place in schools all across America in the 40s? Blacklisting of local confectionaries that would sell comics. The persecution of anyone who worked in the comic book business. If you guys are curious, uh, Rue Morgue magazine has a lot of coverage on EC Comics in their Rue Morgue Library Volume 6, Blood in Four Colors, Graphic History of the Horror Comic by Pedro Cabazulo, or if you guys want, there's a much chunkier book called The Ten Cent Plague, The Great Comic Book Scare and How It Changed America by David Haydu. The Ten Cent Plague is really good and tells a complete story of comics persecution in the early 1900s straight to the early 60s. To give you an idea about what comics and comic creators were like back in those days, it has transcripts, actual full transcripts of famous comic book hearings in the mid-50s that would lead to running about 800 plus people out of business and the creation of the Comics Code Authority. The person at those hearings to take on Senator Kefauver, who's basically using this manufactured outrage of comics to position himself for a run at President of the United States, and Frederick Wortham, who wrote Seduction of the Innocent, a book that basically blamed comic books for all of the world's evils. That was just full of cases that Wortham, we now know for a fact, lied about. And even though if you go back and read those cases, it's pretty obvious that they're all bullshit. And they rely heavily on the idea of correlation equals causation. But he had literally taken multiple cases from youth crime, compiled them together, and insinuated that the result of everything from juvenile delinquency, which was a hot-button word back in those days, to suicide and teen pregnancy and everything, all of it was associated with the reading of comic books, which he just unilaterally called crime comics. And not just the horror comics. He was, re- he was really talking about Superman and Batman and Wonder Woman, hero comics that were really prevalent in the 1940s and 50s. But yeah, anyway, back to my original point. The person taking on these two idiots and the others at those hearings, Bill Gaines, who, in his own words, started horror comics in America. Although not entirely true, crime comics, who were the precursor of horror comics in many ways, were public enemy number one at the turn of the century. They were basically the same kind of stories you could read in the pulps in those days, but were colorful pictures and a 10-cent price tag. 
which means kids could afford it. MC Gaines was the publisher and founder of Educational Comics. When he died in a freak boating accident, his son, Bill Gaines, who was studying to become a chemistry teacher, took over the business, a business that was in debt to the tune of $100,000. But during that time, Bill hired the artist Al Feldstein, and together, inspired by horror shows that would play on the radio, they would revamp EC Comics, now Entertainment Comics, and books like Tales from the Crypt were born. Over the years, Bill Gaines and Al Feldstein basically saved the company with Tales from the Crypt and Weird Science and Vault of Horror, Haunt of Fear, etc. But Bill also became the fall guy for comics. After the hearings, which I always heard from other industry professionals at the time through interviews and stuff, that, oh, Bill tanked, made a fool out of himself. But this book, The Ten Cent Plague, really paints Bill as just exhausted, furious at the establishment, and just not prepared mentally to take on these people who had been gathering their forces for decades at this point, who were practiced public orators. It wasn't Bill's job to take on the government. It was his job to make comic books. And even though his prepared statement was on point and well thought out, a combination of his exhaustion from no sleep because of the nerves and writing his speech, also the fact that everything was so late in the day, this hearing went on for hours and hours and hours. The second he went off script, he was doomed. He fucked it up. They walked all over him. They had to show the public, these officials, that the person who claimed to be the person who started horror comics in America was run out of business. And thanks to choice guidelines in the comics code, i.e. the removal of words like horror and terror from titles, he was basically out of business. Bill Gaines walked away from the comics code authority, which he helped found, because this isn't what he had in mind. And he tried to publish comic books still by relaunching his entire company with clean, safe comic books. Gone were all the horror titles. You know, the kind of comics guaranteed not to offend anybody. But they didn't sell, so EC Comics was done. And the comics code was not just making sure that comics were clean. On paper, the comics code had things like you can't describe in detail how a crime was done. Good always triumphs over evil. Nothing overtly sexual, or really anything sexual at all. Nothing could be disrespecting authority. No drugs, no vampires, no zombies. Nothing like that. Nothing that basically people really wanted to read. Complicated stories. It was doomed to being childish, even by child standards. But the sinister thing about the code, the really sinister thing about the code, was the fact that individuals who were reading your comics, who had individual problems about any one little thing, could reject it. That means that any depictions of, oh, visible minorities, homosexuality, anything that could be considered remotely offensive to them personally, they would reject. Bill Gaines' final story, The Final Judgment, was a science fiction story about an astronaut that went out into outer space and discovered a race of robots. And these robots were virtually identical in every way, except one was colored differently. It seems that one of these colored robots had subjugated the other color. And instead of inviting these robots into what I guess would be kind of like a galactic federation, the astronaut says, you aren't ready. And he leaves the planet. And once in outer space, he finally removes his helmet. And you see that he's a black man. And that should give you all the information you need about a story. But the script was rejected and the comics code said that you can't depict a Negro. And Bill Gaines saying furiously that the entire point of the story was that the astronaut in question was a black man. And the comics code said, you just can't have one. 
You can't have it. He threatened to make this public. He threatened to clearly state that the Comics Code Authority was racist and was trying to impede storylines that depicted other races than white. They relented. They allowed the story to run. Something about also they wanted to change some of the dialogue. In the in the caption that was written, there was beads of sweat on this man's forehead that he was wiping away. And for some reason that bothered them too. It's really hard to really describe exactly what was going through people's minds back in those days. But that just lets you know the world that we lived in not that long ago. One of the main things I always try to emphasize to people about the comics code, about the blatant racism, the the absolute ridiculousness of religious groups and whatnot at the time rallying around this art form is that the Republic comic book burnings. This was on the heels of World War II at the time. And everyone was criticizing Nazi Germany for burning books. Yet, in the United States, they were doing the exact same thing, praising it, saying it was saving their children. Not even a hundred years ago, the United States was burning books. And some people might be saying, oh, well, those are comic books. Well, it's still art and it's still literature, despite what some people might think. I think anybody listening to this podcast would agree. But I digress. Like a lot of you, I first encountered Tales from the Crypt as the show on HBO, and the Crypt Keeper became my idol, a horror host. It was the first time I'd ever seen one, and he was this cadaverous puppet, voiced by, of course, John Kisser. He was funny as hell, and as much as I liked the stories the show would tell, which I always remember having a lot of cannibalism in them, what I really wanted to see was the Crypt Keeper. To me, he was the whole show. Now, the character did exist back in the day, but he was very different. He looked like an old guy in robes, and a lot of the lines were the same, but far less puns. But he did call people kitties, which is definitely something that the Crypt Keeper from the HBO show did. He was definitely less manic, too. And the horror host wasn't exactly invented by Tales from the Crypt or EC Comics. Host characters were present on the radio at the time. And since Bill Gaines was largely inspired by the horror stories that used to play on the radio that had horror hosts, it made perfect sense to also have these books have hosts. So they had hosts like the Vault Keeper and the Crypt Keeper and the Old Witch, each one introducing these stories. And it wasn't until many years later that I would finally get my hands on copies of Tales from the Crypt. As you can imagine, they were very hard to come by. Original copies command massive prices. But I was usually content just watching the show. The HBO show was something that meant a lot to me. And it was something that I used to do with my mom. And really looking back on it, it was the first horror experience that I ever had with another person. My mother and I used to watch that show every week together. We even had this funny dance that we would do with our hands uh, during the theme song which is still, to this day, one of my favorite theme songs of any television show ever. And then Crypt Keeper was everywhere. The HBO show was so popular. There was dolls of the Crypt Keeper that you could buy that talked. One of them had, like, Hawaiian shirts. There was a kid's cartoon show, which was basically more similar to the old EC comics, really, toned down because it was a Saturday morning cartoon show, but still, they are, at their very core, all of these horror stories, morality tales, you do bad shit, bad shit happens to you. And the stories in these books were dense. And, like most comics in the days, were comprised of, like I said, numerous short stories. Six pages or so with a twist ending. So, there's a little brief history on Tales from the Crypt. So, what I think I'm going to do is I'm going to 
read you a selection of these books. Thankfully, I don't need to somehow find comics from the 50s because Dark Horse, and I think another uh, publishing company handled it beforehand, but um, Dark Horse themselves released these fucking gorgeous volumes, about six or so, hardcover editions called the EC Comics Archives. They also have these for other EC Comics, uh, Haunt of Fear, Vault of Terror. They all have them. I think Weird Science has them as well, as well as other crime comics, true crime and, and, and shit like that. Which, by the way, the crime comics that preceded Tales from the Crypt, etc., they were a lot of true crime, but with fantastical twists on things, too. I mean, you would embellish it, but they were essentially just about murderers and adulterers and things that resulted in people's death. And there was always a nugget of a true story in those crime comics, but ultimately they were embellished for entertainment uh, purposes. But without further ado, I bring you Tales from the Crypt. I'm going to be handling volume two because it's got a couple of my favorite stories and it's one of the few uh, official volumes that I have of the EC archives in my high back chair. Got my coffee ready. I never know how my voice is going to go for these things. If you guys are wondering if I practice voices beforehand, I don't. They just sort of come out of me. I'm thinking that because everything's from the 50s, I'm going to have a lot of 50s tinge on it. But yeah, if you guys are interested in following along at home. Also, one of the things I will say about this particular story or all these Tales from the Crypt stories Anytime you're dealing with comic books from this era, it's very difficult to lock down precise writers, artists, letterers, the anchors, colorists, etc. Because a lot of that stuff has been lost. A lot of people use ghosts. So thankfully, EC Comics uh, or, or Dark Horse in this release has done their very best to uh, include as much of the credits as you possibly can. But they are going to be a little sparse. Our first story is going to be Reflection of Death writer and artist, the legendary Al Feldstein. Welcome, dear fiends. Come in. Come into the Crypt of Terror. I am your host, the Crypt Keeper. I see it is time to tell you another of my spine-tingling horror stories from my vast collection here in the Crypt. Hmm. Let me see. Ah, I know. This one is sure to freeze the blood in your veins, guaranteed to make little shivers run up and down your crawling spine. This little adventure in terror, this chilling ordeal, is about to happen to you. You are the main character. Ready? Get a good grip on yourself. Then turn the page and begin the tale. I call Reflection of Death. We see two men in a car, one smoking a cigarette with a pencil-lined mustache. They're both in suits and fedoras. It is the 50s, after all. The narration says, Ahead of you, the white line that divides the road stretches into the darkness beyond your headlight beam. Beside you, Carl sits, puffing on a cigarette. Getting pretty cold, isn't it, Carl? Yeah, and the heater is on the fritz, too. It's good we wore warm clothes. We see the car racing down a dark, lonely road. You're at the wheel. You and Carl have been driving since daybreak. In two more hours, you'll be home. You're tired now, 
The strain of driving throughout the day and into the night is beginning to have its effect. Your eyelids are heavy. They keep closing. You'd better take over, Carl. I'm getting tired. I'd hate to fall asleep at the wheel. Okay, Al. Pull over and we'll switch. The two men have now switched positions in the vehicle. You stop the car and Carl gets out. You slide across the seat and Carl slips behind the wheel. Carl says, Why don't you take a snooze, Al? I'll wake you up when we get to town. Maybe I will, Carl. Al tightens his jacket around him and leans against the window of the car. The caption says, You draw your coat up tight around you. Pull your hat down. Reach into your pocket for your gloves. A shot from Al's point of view looking out into the dark road. You stare out through the windshield. The road comes out of the darkness at you and slides beneath the car, unending. Faster. Faster. Carl begins to whistle an off-key tune. The motor purrs. The road comes on. On. Suddenly, the two men are blinded by oncoming headlights. Your head begins to nod. Carl's whistling continues. Flat. Unmelodic. Suddenly, he gasps. You look up. A pair of headlights, bright, blinding, hurdles you from the darkness. Carl shouts. You try to scream, but it chokes up in your throat. A rattling cough. Look out, Al. We're going to hit. It's a head-on collision. The two cars, totally wrecked from the front. One of the wheels goes flying off the oncoming vehicle. The caption says, There is a splintering, shrieking crash of metal and glass and squealing brakes. You feel yourself flying forward. A blasting light. The pain. The cold. And then, the velvet night closes in. All is quiet, except for a distant, faraway whimpering. We see Al enveloped in total blackness. The caption says, The blackness is empty, eternal. You float in it, turning, twisting, falling, then rising again. The pain is gone. Everything is gone. Only the darkness. On, on, dark, black, empty. We see a POV shot, the night sky, telephone wires, a tree branch. The caption continues. You open your eyes, tiny pinpoints of light, blink bright and dim before you. A leaf flutters, then glides at you. You on your back, gazing up at the night sky. We see another POV shot. Al can see his feet, the lonely road. He's underneath a fence that surrounds the road. The caption continues. You raise your head and look about. You are lying at the edge of a road. You remember now. The headlights. The crash. There must have been a collision. But the wreck. There's no sign of it. Another POV shot. Al can only see his shaken, shambling shadow lit up by the night sky. The caption continues. You get to your feet. Your clothes are torn and dirty. There's a smell. A sickening smell. You look up and down the road. No smashed glass. No twisted metal. Nothing. Just a road clean. White. Reaching into the night. We see, from Al's point of view, his hand blocking some oncoming streetlights as a car approaches. A car is coming. You stumble out onto the concrete. You raise your gloved hand as the car bears down upon you. Its wailing brakes bring it to a stop. The driver says, Crazy fool. Do you want to get yourself killed? I, I... The man, with a look of sheer terror on his face, cries out. The caption says, 
You step close to him. You begin to ask him if he'll drive you into town, that there's been a wreck. Suddenly, you see the wild look in his eyes, a look of stark terror. He stares at you and shrieks. The caption goes on. The car meshes gears and roars away. You can hear him screaming. You cannot understand. Then you laugh to yourself. Of course, he must have been cut in the accident. Maybe the sight of blood scared him. You start down the road toward town, toward home. The caption is that same long, lonely road surrounded by trees. In the far distance, we see the city lights. We see a homeless man with a fire under a bridge cooking his dinner. The caption says, Then you see it, the fire, someone under the road bridge cooking. You move towards him. Perhaps he heard the crash, saw the accident. We see a close-up of the man. He's got a friendly, warm face. He's smiling while stirring his pot hung over a fire. The caption reads, It is a hobo, a tramp, huddled near the fire. He stirs something in a can hung over the flames. He looks up as you approach. The hobo says, Welcome, partner. If you're hungry, set yourself down. The stew's just about done. The caption reads, You move into the firelight. He looks into the can, stirs it a bit, then turns towards you. Suddenly, the blood drains from his unshaven face. He cringes. Kick, kick, keep away, I, I... We see this homeless man, once smiling, friendly, and welcoming, now in absolute terror. He screams and runs from his food, runs from the bridge, up the path, and out of sight. The caption reads, The tramp claws his ways up to the embankment and runs shrieking down the road. You watch him as he vanishes into the night. A POV shot of Al looking down. He's stepping over a newspaper. You continue towards town. You've got to get help. Then you stop. You look down. A piece of newspaper is under your foot. You read the date. The date reads February 26, 1951. We see another POV shot, a lonely road, car lights in the distance. The caption reads, It can't be February 26, 1951. Impossible. It's almost two months from now. Today? Today is January 1st. Hugh and Carl had been returning from a New Year's Eve party. You'd been driving all day. New Year's Day. Now it's New Year's night. Or is it? Another car is coming. You put the paper in your pocket and you step out onto the road. The driver, now a woman, looks sorely afraid. The caption reads, She's frightened. What woman wouldn't be? A lonely road at night? You? A strange man? Stepping out in front of her car? Forcing her to stop or hit you? Of course she's frightened. The woman says, What? What do you want? The caption reads, You're about to tell her not to be afraid, that you mean no harm, but there's no time. She looks at you. Her eyes roll. She gurgles a faint groan and faints. You now see the woman unconscious in the car, groaning. The caption, You get into her car. You drive it to the outskirts of town and leave it. The woman unconscious behind the wheel. You make your way home. Home. But when you reach it, we see a POV shot. Al's perspective. His house is completely boarded up. Garbage, newspapers, trash about the lawn, some sort of sign nailed to the side of the door. The windows and the door are boarded up completely. The caption reads, The windows are boarded up. You cannot understand. There is a sign tacked to the house. 
you move closer to read it. The sign reads, No trespassing by order of the sheriff. This property belongs to the People's Bank and Trust Company, foreclosed January 15, 1951. Foreclosed? On January 15, 1951? But today is... Or is it? The newspaper you found, remember? Have you been unconscious for almost two months? You turn away from the house. A lone figure approaches on the deserted, dark street. And we do indeed see a man walking along the sidewalk in a trench coat and fedora. He's an older gentleman. You walk towards him. You want to ask him the date. He comes closer. Then... He sees you. The man now looks absolutely terrified, and he says, Good Lord! The caption continues. He begins to run from you. You run after him. You only want to ask him a question. Why does everyone stare at you wide-eyed, faint, scream, run from you? Why? He's now standing in front of his friend Carl's door. He's ringing the doorbell. Carl's house. You're in front of Carl's house now. Carl, who was with you when the accident happened. You go up the steps, stand before the door, ring the bell. Heavy footsteps approach. The door opens. Carl stares out at you. You wait for him to scream, to run. Wait for that look of horror, but nothing happens. We see, indeed, his friend Carl. The same pencil-lined mustache, but now his eyes seem strangely obscured, blackened almost. Al speaks. Carl, let me come in. You've got to help me. Carl responds. I... I don't... A caption of Carl looking completely confused. His eyes still strangely blackened in. The caption reads, You rush into his apartment. It is dark. Carl objects. You tell him the story. You blurt it out. Everything. The crash. How you woke up. The people that screamed when they saw you. Except Carl. Carl did not scream. Carl, your friend. Carl says, You joke with me, whoever you are. He stares at you, blankly. There is no recognition. Don't you know me, Carl? Don't you recognize your old friend Al, you say? He shakes his head and turns away. We now see Carl reaching out for the light, his eyes still sunken in and black. He says, you're fooling. This is some sort of gag. Surely you know that Al and I were in an accident almost two months ago. That Al was killed. Horribly mangled. We see a close-up of Carl's face. His eyes white, rolled back. He says, And I lost my sight. That I am totally blind. We see a POV shot of Al approaching a mirror. You? Dead? You gasp. You look around. A mirror. You get up, stagger towards it, and look in. We see, finally, what everyone was afraid of. Why everyone screamed. Why two months have passed. Al's face, horribly rotten away, zombified. His large yellow eyes like saucers staring back into his reflection. His teeth completely exposed. His lips long rotted away. The caption reads, You scream. You open your rotted, torn, decomposed mouth and scream. We see Al covering his face in horror and shame. Carl is at his side. The caption reads, 
Carl is at your side, shaking you. Shaking you. Al! 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 We now cut to the two men. Al, looking normal, human, alive. Carl, still driving the vehicle. He says, Wake up, Al. You're having a nightmare. Huh? What? The caption reads, You look around. You're in the car. Carl is driving. You've been dreaming. Dreaming the whole horrible experience. Al says, Thank God. For what, Al? The two men drive along the road. My nightmare. I dreamed I was dead. Everything was so real. Thank God it was only a dream. Carl chimes in. Oh, yeah. Yeah. A close-up shot of the two men. Al in the foreground. Carl in the background. Al's face is dripping sweat from his nightmare. The caption reads, You watch the road as it unfolds beyond the headlight glow and rushes toward you and under the spinning wheels. You wonder if you should tell Carl about your dream. Carl speaks. We'll be home soon, Al. You stare out the windshield. Far away, the headlights of an approaching car knife through the darkness. Icy fingers grip your hammering heart. They're coming at you now. Fast. As we see, a shot quite mirrored from earlier before while Al was dreaming. Carl, you... that car! The two men shield their eyes from the blinding light. The caption reads, You try to move. You're paralyzed. The dream. It's so much like the dream. You try to scream, but nothing comes out. Carl gasps, then shouts, Look out, Al! We're going to hit! A mirrored shot from before, the cars crashing into each other, the front of the vehicles completely crumpling in, tires flying to the side. The caption reads, There's a squeal of brakes, and the impact of tearing metal and shattering glass. We see Al, yet again, enveloped in inky blackness. The caption reads, You feel yourself thrown forward, a blinding light, a shooting pain. Then the darkness closes in, and you're floating in a sea of velvet black. A POV shot, again mirrored from before. Al looks up to the night sky. You open your eyes. You can see the stars above you, twinkling. A leaf floats from the tree overhead to earth. You are lying at the side of the road. You lift your head and gaze down towards your feet. The dream. So much like the dream. You struggle to your feet. The road is bare. There is no sign of the wreck. From far off, the sound of a motor tells you of an approaching car. You step out into the road. We see Al's body, skewered, silhouetted by the oncoming car lights. He looks indeed as shambly as he did before. The caption reads, The smell, a sickening smell of rotted flesh burns your nostrils. So much like the dream. Only now you know what the stench is. The car stops. You move towards it. Crazy fool! Do you want to get yourself killed? The driver in the car says. Now, a tight, narrow panel of the driver's eyes. He screams in absolute terror, his eyes red, and in his pupils, we can see the reflection of Al's rotted, zombified face. The caption reads, The dream is real. You know what's about to happen. He sees her face. You steal yourself for his reaction. It comes, a haunting, terrified scream. You're dead. You know it now. Dead. And this time, it 
isn't a dream. The end. And the Crypt Keeper returns. <laughs> well, kitties, that's it. Like it? Like being a corpse? Well, you might as well get used to it. It's bound to happen, eventually. No, come, come. Why the grave look? You've got time. <laughs> Maybe you'll know it's coming by having a dream like poor Al in the story. If you do, you'll have something to look forward to. In the meantime, you can look forward to some more chilling tales in this book. Compose yourself. Ready? Okay, then. I'll turn you over to the old witch. And that is going to do it for the story. But don't you fret. Because of the fact that these stories are a little bit shorter, I thought I'd read you two as opposed to one. And the next one isn't nearly as long. I like these books with some good breaks in them because I get the opportunity to uh, drink more coffee. Even though the previous story was handling off to the witch, we are actually going to read a different story than the one that the book suggests for no other reason than the fact that I like this story coming up and I want to get to it just for the hell of it. This story is called Bats in My Belfry. Artist, Jack Davis. Writer, Al Feldstein. We have our introductory page. With the old Crypt Keeper himself, he seems to be resting comfortably with his hands draped over a shrunken head. Surrounding him are images of horror, zombies, something that looks like a werewolf, something that looks like a mummy and a giant spider. And the Crypt Keeper comes in. <laughs> I see you've got enough nerve to buy tales from the Crypt again. Well, I won't disappoint you. You'll get your fair share of shakes and shivers. Believe me, ready to begin? Good. Now lie back on the marble slab. Pull the sheet up over your head, and I'll tell you the first story. It's Harry Gordon's story, told in his own words. He calls it Bats in My Belfry. We see a shot of a man holding his head in a doctor's office. The caption reads, First I found out I was going deaf when I visited our family doctor. I had gone to him before because of a painful earache. The doctor says, I'm sorry, Harry. I know what this will do to your career. The symptoms are unmistakable. In a month or so, you will be stone deaf. Harry asks, Are you sure, doctor? You can't do anything to operate? No. We now see Harry's face. He looks forlorn in deep shadows. The doctor stands under a large light. The doctor says, No, nothing can be done for you. There is no operation. Harry replies, I see. Well, thank you for everything, doctor. Harry's narration. I went home to my wife, Joan. I had told her what the doctor had said. Harry, now standing with Joan. He's still in deep shadow, looking somber. Sitting in a chair, he slumped forward. His wife, Joan, says, You... you won't be able to act anymore? How could I? I'd miss my cues. My voice expression would be lost. We see Joan now. She's absolutely stunning. A beautiful woman wearing a deep V-cutted blouse. Her arm over the back of her head for some reason. There's a mole on her cheek. There must be something they can do. 
go see a specialist. Make sure. I will, dear. We see a panel of Harry in a large auditorium, the stage director looking at him with hands on his hips. Harry has his hand up to his ear, indicating that he wants the person to repeat himself because he can't hear. His narration continues. But every doctor I went to told me the same story. It was useless. When I started to miss cues on stage... Sorry, Harry, we have to get another star. Huh? What did you say? We see Harry and his wife, Joan. She's shouting at him at the top of her lungs, the narration. And then it came, the thick, heavy silence. I was stone deaf. I walked in a world of stillness. The traffic, the crowds, the orchestras, in nightclubs, all silent. I had to learn to lip-read to understand what Joan said to me. I said, our money's practically gone. Understand? We're almost broke. Broke. Cleaned out. Harry looks sad. Yes, Joan. His narration continues. Things got worse. I tried to find work, but I couldn't do anything. Acting was all I knew. Then I thought of an old friend, John Bain. John and I had played summer stock together. Then John had gone blind. I went to see him. We see Harry standing at an open door, a man with circular sunglasses holding a cat. He's wearing a rather flamboyant smoking jacket, red and yellow. He says, Well, well, Harry Gordon, good to see you. Did, did you say my name, John? I, I'm deaf. I can't hear you. Did you say my name? Of course, I recognized you immediately. John is guiding Harry into his home. He's got his arm around Harry's shoulder and in his other hand, a little black cat. You can see? Then why do you wear dark glasses? To hide my eyes. These eyes. Good Lord! We see now that John has removed his sunglasses, he has the eyes of a cat, yellow with slit pupils. The caption reads, John's eyes gleamed yellow in the dim light of his room. John's eyes gleamed yellow in the dim light of his room. They were the eyes of a cat. Harry speaks. What did you do to yourself? Your eyes. Yes, they're cat's eyes. But who cares, Harry? I can see. The caption continues. I had difficulty reading John's lips, but I managed to understand enough of what he said to get the whole story. John speaks. I found out about him through another ex-blind man. He's a genius. He operated on me, grafted these cat's eyes, and now I can see. Harry stands up and puts both hands on John's shoulders. He's pleading with him. Do you think he can help me, John? Restore my hearing the same way? John responds. Why don't you go see him? I'll give you his address. We see Harry looking into a shop. There seems to be a bunch of taxidermied animals filling the window. His caption continues. The shop was in a dark and winding back street in the shabbiest part of the city. There were stuffed animals in the dusty window. John said he wasn't a doctor, but this, this looks like a taxidermist shop. We see Harry now standing in the shop, a mysterious shadowed man looking rather shabby and disheveled is peeking out behind a curtain. The captions read, I went in. A little bell tinkled behind a curtained door at the rear of the shop. The odor of staleness and decay hung heavily in the air. He came from behind the curtain. He was tall and dark, sinister looking. You, you were recommended by a friend. You helped him to see again. I wondered if, 
I see by the way you watched my lips that you are deaf. Come into the back. I will examine you. The rear of the shop looked like an alchemist's nightmare. There were bottles and jars of various colored liquids and powders, but in the center of the room was a modern-looking operating table. Up-to-date equipment. He examined me briefly. Your auditory nerves are paralyzed. I will have to replace your whole hearing system with something different. We see that this mysterious stranger is examining his ears by candlelight. He has a strange instrument in his hand. Looks like a hook attached to a cable. Harry looks up confused. What do you have in mind? I propose transferring the auditory system of a bat into your body. A bat? Yes, the bat's auditory system is unique. It is extrasensory. If the operation is a success, you will be able to hear better than you did before. You lost your hearing. We see now Harry unconscious with this sinister stranger about to place a breathing apparatus over his face. The caption reads, I agreed to the operation. After all, what did I have to lose? Breathe deep, Mr. Gordon. When I came out of the anesthetic, I looked about. He was standing over me. He started to speak. How do you feel? My head. Don't talk. We see that Harry is holding his head. There is a yellow lightning effect around it to indicate that the uh, sound of this sinister person's voice is hurting his ears. The caption reads, His voice slammed in my brain. It was harsh and loud. You'll get used to it, Mr. Gordon. I... I certainly hope so. We now see his wife, Joan, on the telephone, still wearing that low-cut dress. It's not a blouse. I can see the whole thing now, so it's a dress. She is lying casually on the bed. The caption reads, Can you imagine the sensation? Have you ever turned a radio up full blast? That's what everything sounded like to me as I made my way home. When I opened the door, I heard Joan's voice. She was upstairs on the phone. I think he just came in. I'll have to hang up now, darling. Goodbye, dearest. Yes, of course I love you. It seems Joan is stepping out on him. We now see Harry wandering alone in a dark alleyway, depressed. The caption reads, I couldn't believe it. Joan and another man. I decided not to tell Joan about my good fortune, about my hearing being restored. I wanted to wait, to find out more. That night I couldn't sleep. I got dressed and went for a walk. Here's a thought balloon that reads, Funny, I have the strangest feeling like I want to scream. We now see Harry has returned home. He's leaning over the bed, holding his head. The caption reads, I guess I walked all night. When I returned, Joan was gone. She's gotten a job since I lost my hearing and must have left early in the morning. <laughs> it's funny that um, there needs to be an explanation about why Joan would work. Uh, she got a job because I don't have a job. That's interesting. It's interesting to, to read things with context like that. Anyway, Harry says, I feel so sleepy now. Another caption reads, A heavy drowsiness came over me. I don't remember falling asleep, but when I awoke, we see Harry now is upside down on the ceiling his hair falling down due to gravity. He looks surprised, and he shouts out, What in blazes? Harry now slamming down to the floor. He looks disheveled, confused. He's holding his head. The caption reads, I slipped to the floor. I was in a closet? I had fallen asleep hanging upside down from the clothes pole. What? What's happening to me? We now see Harry looking into the mirror. His face is, well, Harry. But it seems more than a five o'clock shadow across his forehead too. The caption reads, 
I staggered into the bathroom and looked at myself in the mirror. I needed a shave badly, but there was something else. He speaks to no one in particular. Hair. Hair growing out of my forehead. My nose. Fine gray hairs. We now see Harry taking a shower. When he raises his arm, he could see that there is strange flesh connecting his elbow to his ribcage. The caption reads, I was frightened. I shaved carefully, clearing my face of the growth. Then I stepped into the shower. As I raised my arm to soap under it, he now speaks out loud. What the? A membrane? A membrane growing across my armpit? I dressed quickly and rushed to my friend John's house. John, who had first recommended the strange shop with its still stranger proprietor. It was getting dark outside. I burst in his door without knocking. John? We see Harry is stepping into John's apartment from the shadows, a doorframe surrounded by curtains. We see glowing yellow eyes. John from the darkness. Get out! Quickly, the caption reads. His room was dimly lit. His feline eyes glowed with an eerie yellow light. He lay in a corner, white, picked clean bones about him. His face was covered in a silk black fur. We now see John has partially transformed into a cat man. It seems that he has likely eaten the small black cat that he was holding when we first met him. Get away from me before it's too late. I'm... I'm an animal, Harry says. What's happened? Tell me. Tell me. We now see John as rising up from the scraped clean bones that he was eating. He edges menacingly towards Harry. He's that horrible fiend. He's... he's done something to me. These aren't cat eyes he's given me. They're the eyes of a panther. And I can't help myself. I have an incessant urge to kill... Lord, help us! Harry staggers back afraid. The caption reads, John snapped on a light. We can now see John's face clearly. He is indeed a panther man. Look at me. Look. I'm even beginning to look like a panther. Don't go to him, Harry. Don't. It's too late, John. It's too late! We now see Harry confused, alone, walking in a dark street. The caption reads, John snarled. His eyes burned. I got out. I began to walk, he speaks to himself. That explains my falling asleep, hanging upside down in the closet, gray hairs on my face, the membrane going across my armpits. I, I'm turning into a bat. We now see Harry has come home. He's awoken, Joan, the caption reads. And that night, as I walked through the blackness, I began to utter short, shrill shrieks, and I listened for the shrieks to echo back. I was using the bat's radar-like device for traveling through the darkness. When dawn came, I made my way home. Joan, now awake. Where have you been all night? Can you understand me? Why did you stay out all night? I... I got a job, Joan. Night work. Joan, looking relieved. Good. Then I'll quit mine today, Harry replies. If you like, Joan, I'm... tired. I'm going to bed. And we see Harry does look exhausted as he's collapsing onto the bed. A new caption reads, She went out, and I lay exhausted on the bed. Again, I don't remember falling asleep, but when I awoke, I was hanging upside down in the closet. I heard voices. Joan's voice. And a man's. We now see Joan is indeed standing with a man. He's got red hair, a pencil-lined mustache. He's wearing a red suit with a cheetah-patterned tie. 
probably trying to make this guy look as sleazy as possible. Jones speaks to this man. He carried a large insurance policy. 15000 He took it out when he was acting and making good money. Is it still in effect? Harry's caption. I listened. From my lair in the closet. I listened. Jones says. Yes. The premium is due next month. We'll be rich after we kill him. From the closet, Harry, looking like he's transforming even farther, looks shocked. I couldn't believe my ears. They were planning to murder me. I got down from the clothes pole and slowly opened the door. Got to get away. Got to get away from them. I rushed down the stairs and out the door before they could stop me. Joan looks surprised and her gentleman caller looks ready for action, his fists clenched. Joan says, It was Harry. He must have hurt us. He'll go to the police. I'll stop him if I have to. We see this man chasing Harry. The representation of Harry's superb bat hearing now is being represented by swirls around his head. The caption reads, Jones' lover came after me. The sidewalks were dark and deserted. I ran, uttering little shrill, high-pitched shrieks. They warned me of fences, dead-end alleys, and blind streets. Harry, it's no use. I'll get you, the man calls at him. We see Harry now transforming even further, his hands turning into long claws, membranes growing between his fingertips. As I ran, I looked down. Claws sprang from my fingers where nails had grown. The gentleman caller says, And when I do, Harry... Now we see Harry is transforming even farther, fur growing across his face, his eyes giant saucers, his claws webbed, hairy, deformed. The caption reads, I passed my clawed hand over my face. It was hairy, and over my lower lip hung fangs. I've grown fangs, the adulterer calls after. When I get you, Harry, I'll kill you. We see Harry now jumping, fangs and claws bared at this man with total ferocity and no mercy. The caption reads, I stopped running. There was no need to run any longer. I knew what I had to do. Joan's lover came up to me, leering. Then his eyes widened in horror. I sprang at him, the man says. No, no, keep away. We see this man now collapsed in the ground. We can't see his face, but he clearly looks dead, or at the very least, very injured. Harry stands over him, his face obscured. The caption reads, He laid sprawled grotesquely on the cobblestones, white as chalk. Two punctures trickled claret on his neck. He was dead. I had drained his blood. Harry speaks out loud. I'm not just an ordinary bat. We now see a close-up of Harry looking vampiric as possible. Red clouds behind him. Bats flying in the sky for emphasis. He looks shocked and his bloody fangs drip. I'm a vampire bat. We now see that he has returned home to his wife, Joan. The caption reads, I fairly flew back through the streets to my house. Back to Joan. Joan speaks. Did you get him, Chuck? Harry! What? What's happened to you? Harry, standing in the doorway, baring his fangs. I killed him, Joan. We see Joan falling back onto the bed. She looks terrified, trying to keep him away with her arms. He menaces her with both claws out, lunging towards him. We can see the speed because his tie is flailing backwards. Harry speaks. I killed him, as you had planned to kill me. And now I must kill you, too. No, Harry. 
No! Harry's caption reads, Her throat was white and soft, not like his, when I had finished. Harry now, skulking away like a ghoulish vampire, he says, Now, I've got to go away and hide. We now see Harry lowering a casket lid over top of his body. He speaks, I found a place, a nice quiet place to hide. It's in this coffin, in this mausoleum. What did I do with the body that occupied it before I came? Oh, I brought it to John, my friend. He made short work of it. The end. And now the Crypt Keeper has returned. <laughs> well, that's Harry's story, kiddies. Personally, I think he was a little batty, don't you? Oh, by the way, if you haven't already received my 5 by 7 picture, not a drawing, but an actual photograph reproduction as I appeared in the flesh, read my column, The Crypt Keeper's Corner, in this issue. And now, I'll turn you over to that bag, the old witch. I like it. Always selling comics, that Crypt Keeper. Or photos. That is going to do it. Uh, tune in next time. Uh, the poll is now closed, and we shall find out. I'll announce it on Twitter. Who wins and who will be the next story that we're going to be reading. But don't you fret. If you guys liked the Tales from the Crypt stories and any of the ideas of doing pre-code comics, uh, I definitely will be returning back to it after our next story is done. I feel like it's going to be story... Preco comics story, preco comics. This seems to be what is interesting people right now. If you guys ever have a comic book that you would like to request for me to do, take a look at, please hit me up at Wes Knife. I'd also like to take this opportunity to thank Rick Hunter for the use of our intro and outro music and Chris Begarin for the wonderful art that he contributes to this podcast. Until next week, I'm Wes Knife, and you've been listening to Panels of Blood.